you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Traders, what's going on? I'm pleased to have you here. Let me introduce this week's guest. This week on the podcast, I spoke with Tom Sosnoff. Many of you will already know who Tom is. He's a pretty popular name within the industry, but if you don't, Tom was a floor trader on the CBOE for roughly 20 years before going on to co-found Thinkorswim, a very popular trading platform and brokerage. In 2009, Thinkorswim was sold to TD Ameritrade for approximately $606 million. Tom left the company shortly after and started financial news show, Tasty Trade. Anyone who has watched the show knows Tom is very opinionated and he didn't tone it down for this interview either. Having listened back over this episode afterwards, I am a little disappointed I didn't push him for more depth on some of the bold statements he does make, but you know, I guess that is hindsight. Anyway, in this episode, we hit on the issue with being too risk adverse in markets and in life, Tom's extensive trading career, plenty of talk about options, the value of intellectually challenging ourselves with respect to finance, and much more as well. Now, just before we roll into the interview, I do have something very cool to share with you. For the first time, Chat with Traders t-shirts and also hoodies are now available with two designs to choose from. But these are only available for a limited time. So you have until September 2nd to purchase. Otherwise, unfortunately, you will miss out. To view and purchase the t-shirts, you can go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash t-shirt. Now there's no dashes in that. It's just chatwithtraders.com forward slash t-shirt. Both the t-shirts and hoodies are printed on American Apparel, so they're premium quality and very comfy to wear. Again, that's chatwithtraders.com forward slash t-shirt to treat yourself. All right, this is episode 87, and here is my guest from Chicago, Tom Sosnoff. I noticed you did a TED Talk last year, uh, being 2015. I mean, what was that like? That must have been a pretty cool moment in your career? Um, it was okay. You know, it was weird. I got there like 
they, they had me come at like six o'clock in the morning and I didn't go on till like 11. And by the time I got on, I was like, I was already done with that. You know, like I was ready to get out of there. <laughs> so after walking around for five hours there, I, I kind of lost a little interest. Um, it was okay. You know, the clock I had in front of me wasn't really giving me a good time. So I, I thought it was okay. Not my best. Sure. Well, I mean, I really enjoyed the talk and I, I want everyone listening to this to actually check it out. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Um, but one of the things you spoke about during that TED talk, I thought was really interesting. And that was, um, and, I'm, and I'm hoping you can share this story uh, with listeners just briefly, uh, was the story about how you started out as a golf caddy and the game that you used to play with everyone there. Um, I understand it somewhat shaped your risk tolerance and your respect for probabilities. Uh, would you mind sharing that with us? Well, um, you know, it's funny because I like to feel like I've, I had way more life lessons when I was uh, 14 and 15 years old from an old caddy master named Jimmy Rocco. I don't even know if he's still alive today, but, uh, you know, he would he would clean me out of um, – they used to call when you when you caddied eighteen holes. They'd call it a loop, right? And, we, and uh, I was just a kid. I was maybe you know, like I said, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. And we had to do two loops on the weekends. Otherwise, you couldn't go out in the morning, you know, because there was there wasn't enough caddies. So we'd have to go thirty six holes. And, and I felt like every dime I made, it was all cash back then too. And I felt like every dime I ever made, Jimmy Rocco took from me. <laughs> so it was a cheap life lesson, as they say. Um, but he cleaned my clock for a couple of years before, you know, I finally got some money back from him. But uh, yeah, he used to he used to pick us off with uh, chipping into a bucket for quarters, and yeah, it was a pretty good life lesson. We were all just a bunch of dumb kids, and and Jimmy Rocco was a total grifter, and and you know, it's a good good life lesson, as we say. <laughs> That's awesome. So so how did the the bucket uh, the bucket I don't know if you want to call it the bucket game, but whatever it was, how did that actually work? I mean, you flipped a, a coin into a bucket and whoever could chip the ball into the bucket got to keep all the coins. Is that right? Yeah. You know, so back, back then, um, we would, we would use like, you remember, you remember like going to a carpet store and buying a two foot carpet sample. Mm -hmm. So what Jimmy Rocco would do is he'd go to this carpet store in the neighborhood and he'd pick up a bunch of sample carpets maybe like, like not really shag carpets, but just like a, you know, a, a little bit of a soft carpet because they didn't have AstroTurf or something like that back then. And, and he'd put down a carpet on one side and about 15 or 20 feet away, he'd put a garbage pail with no wall behind it. And what we'd have to do is, you know, if you wanted to step up and, and there'd be a balls there and, and clubs, and if you wanted to step up with a sand wedge and chip it into the bucket, you had to put a quarter into the bucket first. And so he'd be behind this, uh, you know, caddy masters were always behind some door, behind some screen or something. And he'd be sitting there watching all the caddies and there'd probably be like 100 kids or 50, 100 kids, whatever it was. And we'd all take our turns and we'd walk up, throw a quarter in the bucket at a time or, you know, two or three quarters, whatever change we had on and take our shot. And if you made the shot, you got all the money that was in the bucket. And we just wanted to make the shot. And he just wanted our money. So as soon as there was like, as soon as he saw enough money in the bucket, he'd come back out, throw his quarter in, and the guy was a great golfer, and he he killed us every time. Every time he shot, he made one. So you know, <laughs> and it only take the shot if the bucket was full. If, if there the was if there was enough quarters to cover the bottom of the garbage can. Yeah, so he was a smart man. <laughs> Very. Well, cool. yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, it was it was money to him. It was personal to us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. Yeah, after after my experiences playing golf, my, one of my favorite stories with him, um, since we're on Jimmy Rocco's stories, is is he convinced me one night as I was getting older, I was probably like eighteen or nineteen, 
I don't know, maybe 17 or 18. I don't remember what I was, but I was playing golf at that point on like the golf team at my high school. And he convinced me that I was a better golfer than him, even though he was a great golfer. And and one night we went out and played nine holes and he made me give him a half a stroke a hole and he shot a legit 31. And so I was giving him a half a stroke a hole on a par 36 and he shot a 31. Needless to say, I lost all nine holes and I owed him my caddy money for the next like three weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> That must have been devastating. <laughs> well, you know, in, in the long run, it was relatively cheap for me. Those were cheap lessons. Probably made me into a better trader. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, that's the sort of thing that sticks with you for sure. Oh, yeah, for definitely a whole life. Yeah. And also in your TED talk, I found it really interesting. Um, you spoke a lot about risk and not even just risk as in like risk in financial markets, but just kind of like taking risks in life, which I thought was really interesting. So, I mean, I'm going to, I really want everyone to check out that your TED talk, like I said, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Um, but I think people are generally, especially this generation, Um, people tend to be really risk averse. And I think it's a big mistake. And when we were growing up and, and like I was in my, you know, early twenties after I finished college, you know, I, I, I kind of had the mentality. We didn't know there was no such thing as entrepreneurship then. So we really didn't know, you know, we didn't know the difference between taking risk and not taking risk, but we kind of figured out that, you know, if you're ever going to do something in life, if you're going to take your shot or whatever it is, um, you, you probably want to do it when you're younger. I think that's more common sense than anything else. And so, you know, we were willing to kind of roll the dice. And I think today, you know, with very with uh, with tons of debt from, uh, you know, from from higher education, with just a lot more pressure on you to succeed and everything, people are a lot less willing to take risk. And I, I think that's really changed the environment around risk taking, and the environment around entrepreneurship, and 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 some of the creativity that's out there today among millennials. Yeah, so that's actually something I wanted to ask you. I thought it might be interesting to get your take on how do you differentiate uh, good risk and bad risk taking. Like, is there a difference between you know being um, I don't know, having that entrepreneurial spirit and going out and getting it and just being careless. Is there any difference between good risk and bad risk? Like how would you differentiate that? Well, I think when it comes to in the trading world, um, I think that there is anytime you're in a highly efficient marketplace and you're able to assign real numbers to um, real numbers and real probabilities. Because in other words, if something's tradable, it has real markets and real probabilities. And then I think there's a difference between um, high probability and low probability, which to me is a difference maker with respect to what they call real risk. Um, Meaning that, you know, it's it's just, it's healthy to learn how to be successful. I think the, the, I think when you're taking, you know, different kinds of risk in life, it's, it's a little harder to assess what you're calling real risk. Like, like in other words, we get we something has a 95 percent chance of success just in general. Like, you know, I have a 95, I have a 99 percent chance of driving home tonight and not getting into an accident, or or maybe 99.9 percent chance of driving home tonight and not getting an accident. But then, but then, what are the risks? You know, if I was to get in an accident, you, you know that you know what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if it's efficiently priced. 
like car insurance is not efficiently priced. Hurricane insurance is not efficiently priced. It's probably 80% over. So I think a lot of the risks that we take in life, generally speaking, are not efficiently priced. So I think one of the problems that people have with taking risk is they generally lose. And the reason they lose is because there's no context around that risk that you're taking. In the world of investing and trading and everything else and the stuff that I love to do, it, there's so much there's so much efficiency around pricing that you can put real context around risk and therefore it's a whole different game. And that's what I love about the business. Mm. Okay, well, let's, let's get into that. So, I mean, how did you get into trading? Like, where did you start out? Um, right after college. It's really the only business I've ever been in. I got a job right after college. Um, uh, I graduated in college the summer of um, the summer of 1979, and and uh, in the fall of 1979, I went to work for Drexel Burnham. 1979, 1980, and and six months later, I moved to Chicago to to come out here to trade. Okay, so a couple things. I believe you graduated with a degree in political science. Like, what actually attracted you to financial markets? I mean, those sort of seem like two totally separate well, things. Well, remember, 1979 was was a um, was a time when gold was... Ex- I don't know. How old are you? I'm 25. Oh, you're 25. Okay. Well, this is... You're, you're, you're in between my kids' ages. So I have a 23-year-old and 27-year-old. So 1979 was a year that gold and silver were exploding. Um, this was the Hunt Brothers cornering the silver market. This was... We were in a real recession. Interest rates were approaching, you know, 20% in short-term rates. Long-term rates were higher. Gold and silver were exploding. There was chaos. The markets were were dead. There was nothing going on. And um, we were in a real recession. Kids coming out of college, you know, I mean, you would take any job you could get at the time. That's just how we all, you know, there wasn't anything out there. They weren't, they weren't searching for, you know, 22 and 23-year-olds. And... You know, so I would go to any interview, any interview I could. I, I my my first choice was to work for a lobbyist in, um, uh, you know, in in either state government or or national politics. And I wanted to, you know, hopefully get a job with a lobbyist or or a politician and learn, you know, learn my way, whatever that meant. But the job interviews that I turned out to be best at were in the world of finance. And the first job interview that I really had was to go to work for Drexel. And you know, at the time. You kind of bullshit your way through and turned out, you know, that was a better field for me. And then the first time I went and visited the exchanges in Chicago, which was the Chicago Board Option Exchange, you know, I walked on the exchange and 30 seconds later, I'm like, this is where I want to be. You know, this is the coolest place in the world. So I want to be here. No doubt. No doubt. Okay. So, I mean, I believe you're only at uh, Drexel Turnham for a short amount of time and then they actually went bankrupt. What led to their bankrupt? Like what went down there and, and well, I was actually there only about six or eight months, but but when I they, when I left there, they were an extremely rich firm, and they were not even close. Their bankruptcy was all around the junk bond crisis, and I don't know if you remember the whole Michael Milken incident, but Michael Milton kind of created the junk bond era, and he was a Drexel person that made hundreds of millions of dollars, and in the downfall of Michael Milken came the downfall of Drexel Burnham, and so. Uh, the reality is that it was much more of a, a much more of an isolated situation tied to one person, and that was probably in the the mid '80s. It was a long time later. It was probably five or six years later. I had already left the firm, and uh, you know I was already in Chicago, kind of making, you know, making a name for myself on the on the floor of the uh, Chicago Board Option Exchange. Okay, got it, got it. So when you did go to the CBOE, I mean, 
where did you start? Like, how did you learn how to trade and what was your learning curve like there? Oh, I'll never forget. I got to the floor and and I was backed by a couple of guys from New York that I met at Drexel that uh, wanted, they wanted some young kid with no ties to go to, to go to Chicago. I was 23. And so, you know, I didn't have any ties. I wasn't married. You know, I had no reason not to come to Chicago. So I packed up my car, came to Chicago. I was on a seat the very first day that I came out here and I walked onto the floor. I had no idea what I was doing, where I would go. I didn't understand a thing anybody was saying. So I picked a crowd where there was a couple of, where there was not that many people. I remember at the time it was a national semiconductor and uh, which uh, the symbol was NSM back in the day. They're no longer in existence. And I walked in the crowd and and, uh, there was a guy there that was from the same hometown as me. And I, I walked up to him, and first I walked up to his clerk, who happened to be about the same age as me, and we're, we're still friends today, you know, 35 years later. And I said, hey, you know, we're from the same town. He said, hey, how are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm here clerking for my brother. So I walked up to his brother, who was in the crowd. He was trading, and I said, hey, we're from the same town. I put up my hand to shake it, and he goes, fuck you. <laughs> and so I knew right there, okay, this is not going to be a picnic. And I figured it out really quickly, you know. The, the trading floors were were lots and lots of alpha males, very tough kids, you know, all independent, all strong, strong egos. And and and, you know, and, and it was the kind of thing where, you know, they were all grifters and, and they were nice people. And they but they were just all the same makeup. And, you know, it kind of fit my personality. I fit right in. And and I spent the next you know, I figured it out after a couple of months and I spent the next 20 years there. Okay. Okay. So a lot of your learning was essentially sort of almost like a trial by fire sort of scenario. Oh, absolutely. No, they throw you in there. There's no, over the years, I hired lots of traders, hundreds of traders over the years, because that's how I got a job. Somebody, you know, backed me. And so I figured, you know, when I started making money, I have no problem, you know, trying to back others. And we hired kids that were going to go on, you know, for PhDs and brilliant, you know, MBAs and some of the smartest people around that never were successful. And we hired, you know, professional wrestlers, professional football players, you name it over the years, we tried everything. There was no, there was no miracle formula for floor traders. Some people had it, some people didn't, you know, three, four, 5% of the people made it. And I was lucky. I was one of those people. That's all. It was just luck. The guys who backed you initially, did they offer you any sort of guidance or mentoring or was it? No, no? nothing. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. It was a total, but I didn't even offer that to the people that we hired because we didn't know, you know, I mean, we said, Hey, listen, go down there, go make some money. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, we used to, in hindsight, we used to laugh about it, but really, you know, we didn't offer much. It, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. It's, it wasn't a business that, um, there was only a few outliers. And for everybody else, it was, you know, you know, we were pretty much trying to survive at the top of the pack. You know, there was a couple of outliers that made it to a different level. But for the majority of us, you know, we were the best of the rest type of thing. So were there any like major realizations you had during your time on the floor that that made a significant impact on the way you traded? You know, it's a it's a very fair question. I think over time, um, we definitely tried to think outside the box a little bit, meaning that we um, we tried to do things like we managed money, we built our own technology. Like I was never one to sit still. So we managed money, 
We, we, um, uh, we built prop trading firms. We built new technology. We did program trading, which was like the, the precursor to high-frequency trading. I mean, we tried everything throughout the years to see, you know, what will take us to another level. So I never sat still. But, um, you know, my, my takeaway was always the same for me. I always worked. I tried to outwork everybody because I knew I couldn't outsmart everybody. But so I tried to outwork everybody. I like that. Have you always had this this quantitative way of looking at things that you do now? I know I know on Tasty Trade you're often talking about things in a very sort of quantitative manner. Was that always the case? You know, it even- probably didn't start that way for me until until late on my floor trading career, and really as we started to build Thinkorswim. During the process of building Thinkorswim, I learned for the first time how to articulate the business and how to talk about the things that we were doing and also how to put context around everything that we were doing. So I would say that in fairness, it wasn't in the first 20 years of my floor trading career, my goal was to make money and was to put myself in a position where I could, where I could choose what I wanted to do you know, at a different point in my life. And we got to a point where we had made enough money where we could go out and build Think or Swim. So that was what we chose to do with our capital and we rolled all the dice and, and, you know, built an amazing firm. And at that point, I started to learn about, um, I started to learn about the quantitative side, about the idea that there could be real probabilistic outcomes, that everything was as efficient. I always knew everything was efficient, but I didn't know that you could take that efficiency and apply it to scalable technology and to predictability with respect to outcomes. Right. Well, I'm very keen to, to hear more about how you started Think or Swim and that whole whole journey in, in just a moment. But I'd really like to uh, dive deeper into options. I know a lot of listeners will be really interested to hear what you have to say on the subject, uh, of course. So what was it about options that appealed to you over other markets, you know, let's say stocks or futures or, or you know, any of those markets? Well, again, it, it came down to, you know, if, if you had when I was 22 or 23 years old, if you had said to me, hey, we're going to send you to the floor of the of the New York um, COMEX exchange so you can trade silver futures, I probably would have been a futures trader. You know, it just so happened that life works out in such a way where, you know, you end up in a place where wherever I would have ended up, I didn't know anything about. So I happened to have ended up on the option exchange, which was probably a function of the seat leases were a little cheaper on the option exchange than they were on the futures exchanges. So I ended up in options. Um, you know, I fell in love with options because they are strategic and which is very different. Futures and stocks are very black and white. You either pretty much you buy them or sell them and there is no, there's no gray area. I mean, you know, you're, you're either right or wrong based on, you know, pure direction. I learned quickly in options that it's much more than direction. It's a very strategic, it's a gray area game. And you can be right and make money. You can be wrong and lose money. And I'm sorry, you can be you can be <laughs> you can be right and lose money, or you can be wrong and make money in options. And that was a that was a huge difference maker for me when I finally figured it out. So you know, you talked a little bit there about the the gray area of options. I mean, what are some of the misconceptions outsiders often have about options trading? Is there anything that stands out to you? Sure. Well, well, the most popular misconception is that there is this ridic- that that eighty five percent of the people lose, and there's because there's this most there's a ridiculous amount of risk with 
naked options. And the reality is the only way to be successful in the world of options is to learn how to trade small, how to manage your profits, and how to sell options naked. And it's completely, everything we do at Tasty Trade now goes completely counter to what the traditional norms are with respect to traders, investors, and the entire industry. You know, we're the complete black sheep of the world, which I love when it comes to trading and investing because we are advocates for individual active trading when we believe that it's the only way to be successful. So, so, why, are you, <laughs> so why are you so fixated on that? Why do you believe it's the only way? to be successful. I don't be because I actually don't believe, I, I believe in the statistics like you were mentioning before. I believe in the, the mechanics behind the statistics. And if you have a statistical chance of success that is better than a statistical chance of failure, then all you do, all you need to do to meet that probabilistic outcome is to create enough occurrences. So I believe in active trading and I believe it's important to create as many occurrences as possible in order to be successful. Hence the reason we were successful on the trading floor, we just didn't even know it. But that can be done with other products as well, like stocks, futures, forex, no, if you No, it cannot be. It cannot be because you cannot, create a, you cannot create a statistical chance of success that is greater than 50-50. So it can't be done. And what if you have a quantitative model that's- There's no such thing. You can throw all those quantitative models in the garbage. They're absolutely worthless. There's never been one. You can never prove to me that there's ever been a successful quantitative model that's been distributed on any level. It could be. Now, that, that doesn't mean there's not high-frequency models, and that doesn't mean that there's not, um, there's not prop trading models when you're market making. But there's never been a customer, institutional or retail, that's created a quantitative model that can beat the markets. So the answer is that doesn't exist. That's all crap. Sh that's all horseshit. I don't really know what to say. Well, I mean, listen, that, that's the, I've been doing this a long time. That That is the answer and that's the truth. Nobody wants to believe that, but there's no such thing. Artificial intelligence, quantitative modeling, none of it works, none of it exists. Forget fundamental analysis, forget technical analysis, forget economists. It's all irrelevant. Everything is random. Marketplaces are random, but there are there are different prop models, market-making models. That's fine. High-frequency models, we all know that. But there are no other models other than creating. The only way to be successful is to create. That's why hedge funds don't make money. That's why nobody makes money in cyclical markets. And the only time anybody makes money is if benchmarks go higher. Except the tasty trade way, which is, which is creating a methodology and having people understand and learn that if you do things that are statistically strong, even though you don't have a theoretical edge, you have a probabilistic edge, and it's real. Okay, can you just can you just explain those a little more when you say a statistical edge and a theoretical edge? What do you how do you differentiate those two? So markets are priced. There, there's no mispricing of markets. So stock markets, futures markets, forex markets, option markets, everything's priced perfectly. The world prices everything per perfectly. There's too much capital chasing virtually risk-free rates right now are zero. So there's too much capital chasing any return they can get their hands on. So there's no free money out there at all, which means there's a buyer and seller one tick wide for every possible you know, liquid product out there. So there's no edge. So we can eliminate that right away, which is why all quantitative modeling is garbage and everything else. So, so that brings us to then how do you make money? Well, the way you make money is that the derivatives marketplace overprices fear, which means that 
we charge too much money for fear and we charge too much money for limited profitability by definition. So if you're willing to limit your profitability and fear is expensive relative to itself, then for us, that's an opportunity. And we consider that completely unique to the methods we've created. And, and when I say we've created, they're out there. I mean, anybody can do it, which just means when implied volatility gets really high, we sell it. And you sell it in the form of selling derivatives so that you have an opportunity to collect time decay as it contracts. And it contracts twice as often as it expands. And it's a lot for one, one short podcast, but essentially that's what we do every single day of especially now for the last five years. What would you say to those who are, I mean, there are traders out there who are making money in other ways. I mean, what do you think that's a, you know, a factor of luck or? Some of them lie and some of them, some of them are tied to a benchmark. So they get something. Some of them lie and some of them, some of them are outliers. Of course, there's people that have been long gold. There's people, I mean, nobody's made any money being long the stock market for two years and we're at a record high. So, so if you, you know, yeah, sure. If you went out a couple of years ago and you bought, you know, you put all your money in Amazon or you put all your money in, you know, Apple or Netflix five years ago, you had a pretty nice run. And if you put all your money in Amazon last year, you had a pretty nice run. But when you're talking about in general, you know, people don't make money with 50-50 bets. People make money going to Vegas too. But, you know, you know the odds are against you and over time you can't. So, so, so all we're saying is we don't care about outliers. We care about, um, we care about the masses. And if the masses are consumer, if the masses are this huge con cons global consumer, then the only way to do it is to put yourself in a position where the statistics favor you. That's it. There's no such thing as people making money because they all of a sudden learned a new form of technical analysis or they figured out they have a great artificial intelligence platform or they're, they're better at reading a balance sheet than somebody else. You know, once they outlawed insider trading in the U.S. to the eighth degree, you know, none of the hedge funds made any more money. I mean, I believe the world of the past world of one hit wonders and some crazy, you know, trader on some bond desk somewhere or some some. Uh, international desk somewhere. You know, those days of stealing money from your customers are long gone. Everything's too effectively, too efficiently priced right now. So we live in a world, if you want to learn how to make money, you've got to learn how to sell overpriced fear. It's the only, it's the only given out there that has a contraction, um, that has a reversion to the mean characteristic that, that works. And that's it. And it's not, it's not something tricky. It's just this, the nature of the beast. All right. So let's just, let's just dumb this down a little bit. You know, I'm not an options guy myself, so I'm sort of sure, trying no to problem. play catch up here a little bit. But, you know, selling overpriced fear, what do you exactly mean by that? And also if you could just take it one step further and let's just break down the key elements crucial to successful options trading. Well, here's a couple of things that are crucial. Number one, you need to be, you need to be, product indifferent, which means you can't, you can't worry about, you know, what product you're trading. Number two, you need to be strategy, strategically indifferent. So, so essentially agnostic to strategy, you can't be scared of different strategies. So your product and your, your product agnostic and you're essentially strategy agnostic. Now, the next step after that is understanding the value of liquidity. So if you don't have like, you're in Australia, 
There is no such thing as a liquid option market in Australia, which stinks because you have to trade in the U.S. And that's a bummer because of the hours and places like that. But but there is you have to have liquidity in order to be successful because you have to be able to get in and out. So your product indifferent, your strategy indifferent, and your number one focus is on liquidity. That's just for starters. Then you've got to learn some basic things, which is number one, you've got to learn how to create enough occurrences so that you can create the outcome that you're hoping for. Number two, you have to learn how to maximize your success rate, and that happens from managing your winners, not worrying about your losers. That's the next step. And then ultimately, you got to understand the math behind it and why certain things work. Why is price not mean reverting, but implied volatility is? And then what is implied volatility? You know, is it a factor of what? It, well, we know it means expected move. But what drives implied volatility? Why is sometimes implied volatility high and why is sometimes implied volatility low? Places, things like that. So all that stuff, Aaron, is things you're just going to have to, over time, it just takes, you know, it takes a little bit of work. I mean, we have a few thousand listeners, viewers in Australia alone. And just imagine that's, uh, you know, um, I mean, obviously we used to have a business, think or so in Australia, but um Still at Tasty Trade, we have a few thousand Australian viewers, and it's great. And and they get it. It's just it's a tiny sub segment. It's one tenth of one percent of the people out there that that actually trade in Australia. One of the things you said in there, um, you you spoke about price is mean reverting. No, I said price is not mean reverting. Oh, price is not mean reverting. Sorry. Yes. So what exactly does does that mean when price is not mean reverting? Okay. So that means like let's say you had a stock. Let's call it XYZ, all right? And XYZ starts out at $20 and XYZ goes to $100. There's no reason, there's nothing out there that suggests that XYZ has to go back to $50. Cuz at some point $50 may be the average or the mean, you know, and and there's no reason that XYZ has to go back to 50. XYZ can go to 200, XYZ can go to 300, XYZ can go to 0. It doesn't mean anything. There's no reason it has to go back to even though marklets are cyclical, there's no reason XYZ has to go back to $50. But let's say XYZ has an implied volatility of 20, and all of a sudden, the, the average implied volatility in XYZ is 20, and all of a sudden, XYZ implied volatility goes to 50. Now, implied volatility is mean reverting. So at some point in the future, and usually it's the near future, implied volatility in XYZ will go back to 20, may even go down to 10, and then it'll be mean reverting back up to 20. But the, the takeaway here is that you, haven't, you have an asset class that is mean reverting. It's implied volatility, and nobody uses it, or very few people use it for that purpose. That's why it's so valuable. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. 
Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com chat to learn more. The next thing I'm really keen to ask you about uh, to expand on a little more, because you've, you've mentioned it a few times now, is that, you know the number of occurrences. So how does the law of large numbers play into your trading and and just sure i really want i really like this point i think it, it's very good that you let can, me give you let me give you a really easy example so so you go out and um you go out and you have a, a handful of pennies all right in your hand you have a handful of pennies let's say you have a hundred pennies you're able to hold in two hands and you throw them all up in the air right and now, you know, over time, if you throw 100 pennies, 1,000 pennies, 10,000 pennies, whatever it is, if you throw 10,000 pennies or 20,000 pennies or 100,000 pennies, you're going to be pretty damn close to 50-50 heads or tails, right? But if you throw up 100 pennies in the air, you may end up with, you may end up with 60 or 70 pennies coming up heads and only, I don't know, 30 or 40 pennies being tails. And all of a sudden, you can go around saying, hey, I'm really good at flipping coins. I can flip as many heads as I want. Or to give a better example, if there's, if there's, a, hundred, if there's a hundred people in a room and each, each one of the hundred people has 10 pennies in their hand and each hundred people throw up the 10 pennies, one of those 10 people or one of those hundred people is going to have 10 heads or 10 tails. And when that happens, are you going to say, wow, that person's a great coin tosser? Or are you going to say, hey, that was just an outlier move. They got lucky. It happened It happened that way. Well, in the world of investing, we think that person that got 10 heads or 10 tails is a genius. And they're not. It's just the statistical chance of coming up with 10 heads or 10 tails. So the law of large numbers comes into play because if Aaron, the self-directed trader, goes out and makes 20 trades per year, which is what most customers do around the world, or 20 different investments over the course of the year, which is one or two a month, there's no way you can be long-term successful. But if Aaron, the self-directed investor, goes out and does lots of high-probability option trades where you're selling premium and you do 3,000 trades next year, there's a highly probable chance that you're going to come within 1% or 2% of the exact number of the probability or of the probabilistic outcome that the number of that your I'm sorry your predictable probabilistic outcome like this year I don't know how much money I'm going to make but I'm going to be right approximately 74% and 74.5% of the time because that's the average I do with all my trades now that doesn't mean I'm going to make money I can lose money and be right 74.5% of the time but what it means is that I'll, and what it means to me is that I'll take my chances and that being right 74 and a half percent of the time, I know I can turn that into a winning year for myself. Mm-hmm. So on average, just so we can put this in perspective further, how many trades would you take in a year? Last year, I, I, I don't, 
last year I did 9,400. The year before I did 7,700. This year right now I'm on pace to do 10,000. That's just me. I can't speak for other people. And I'm a retail customer using the same technology and the same commissions as everybody else. Okay. So for, so for a retail trader, someone who may not have a, a great big account, uh, what would be the minimum account size for this to actually be feasible for someone to do anywhere near that many trades, like factoring all your transaction costs and that sort of thing? Um, that kind of trading, probably, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars, to be fair. It, you'd want to have portfolio margin or a couple hundred thousand dollars. In, in, the, in the world of average size trades, the average size trade for active traders and businesses is just under $50,000. It's between forty-five dollars and $50,000. That's the average size account. So for someone who wants to sort of tap into this law of large numbers and really get their trade numbers up, but doesn't have a great big account, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred grand, what sort of advice would you, would you give to them in that situation? Well, how much money are you talking about? Well, you know, I know a lot of people start out with accounts between five, 10,000, I mean, I think that's great. And if you can start out with anything, like both my kids started out with accounts, you know, between um, $2,000 and $8,000. And I think it's a great learning experience for them and for anybody else. I mean, your goal at that point is obviously to become more um, aware. We call it market awareness and clear of the concept. And you start to learn about products and strategies. You start to learn about statistics and probabilities. And you start to learn about risk-taking and everything else. So I feel like they're infinitely stronger because of all of that. But, um, you know, you'll start off with spreads mostly and, and, and lower probability of success. It's harder to make money. This is a, this is, this is a business that um, there, there's parts of it that are, that are very much nonlinear. And when you talk about small amounts of capital, um, although you can create much better statistical returns, it's, it's more difficult. There's certain limitations. But I think that the, that the consequences of starting young and starting small are invaluable. Um, and the mistakes are well worth it. Let's put it that way. Now, when you talk about statistics and probabilities, what sort of level of math is required to be able to come up with these numbers? We have two things we say here, Aaron, two things. One, if you can play, can you play blackjack? I've never played blackjack, no. Okay, well, if you've played blackjack or craps, you can do it with your eyes closed. And we have an old saying here at Tasty Trade, if you can order a pizza, and I know you can order a pizza, <laughs> if you can order a pizza, you can trade. Okay. <laughs> this is not, it's not rocket science. It's very straightforward. You know, we're no longer, when I grew up in this business, it was all eighths and sixteenths and thirty seconds, and it was a little bit more complicated. Right now, we've reached the point where it's none of the above. I mean, it's all decimalized. It's, it's, it's pretty much industry standards for everything. This is not hard stuff. We have, we have a solid 100,000 plus Tasty Traders. And in the world of Tasty Trade, it's a, um, uh, you know, I mean, we've just scratched the surface. So, so I think, you know, we got to give people a lot more credit for the average level of intelligence out there and globally. I mean, we are a very smart society and we do not challenge ourselves. One of the things that we say here all the time is we need to create more intellectual challenges. You know, we have way too many people playing Pokemon and not enough people challenging themselves intellectually um, with respect to finance. And that's our goal. Challenge you intellectually, never dumb it down, make it as 
hard and complex as possible and never let our foot off the gas pedal. Now, I think it might be really interesting to hear about your logic for entering, you know, trades. Considering you take, you know, anywhere between 7,000 to 10,000 trades in any given year, what's your logic for entering these trades? Like what's that based upon? It's all mechanics. It's all mechanics and opportunity. We look for, um, we're contrarians. So we look for price extreme. That's just, that. that's not because there's any edge to, to price extreme. There's no edge to being a contrarian in that, in a true sense. The, 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 the reason we do it is because it engages us and it gets us involved in the, in the making of a trade. So one of the things we do is we're contrarians by nature. Um, we love the, the counterparty to the trade aspect of, you know, of taking the other side of what everybody else wants to do. So when the world's long, we're short. When the world's short, we're long, that kind of thing. Um, that's one thing. That's the engagement side. The other side is, you know, it's all based on strategy. It's based on the amount of decay we've created for ourselves daily. It's based on the amount of occurrences. We're always engaged. We're always involved. And, and it's, it's hard to explain until you get, get it going at that level. But, you know, what we do, this is, this is not hardcore trading for the prop traders, for the professionals. We are strictly 100% retail, no institutions, no prop traders, none of that stuff. But this is all retail consumer trading. And we think everybody's capable. It's just an intellectual challenge. I would have given you a different story 25 years ago. 25 years ago, there was opportunity that was a different kind of opportunity. The markets were wide. They were inefficient. You could drive a truck through, through markets 25 or 30 years ago. So, but that market stone, those markets don't exist anymore today. And if you're going to trade in today's markets and you're going to trade as an individual investor, you are not disadvantaged to the professional marketplace. Okay? You're not disadvantaged at all. You have better technology, better content, and, and your fees are almost exactly the same. So your disadvantage is know-how. If, if you don't have the know-how, you can't compete. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that a lot of traders are, are very much into, and some even say that it's, you know, maybe 90% of the challenge is trading psychology. Uh, I understand you feel very differently about this. Can you give us trading your psychology take? is 100% bullshit. It's people like to, we, we're enablers. Our society is, is you know, we, we've created a society of enablers. And so we make people feel, feel good about their inept financial abilities, their lack of know-how, it's, it's not because they don't have the right, you know, um, trader psychology or, or they're not seeing the right trader psychologist. It's because, and most of the people that are trader psychologists that I've ever run across have, have, would have zero value in my world. This is not a, you know, right brain, left brain type thing. It, the, the reason people aren't successful is because they don't take the time and the commitment to be successful. That's all it is. And I'm tired of enabling people and, and making trying to make everybody feel good when the industry is conflicted by, by, the, by the true sense. This industry makes money by managing other people's money and by selling people money and by selling fear. And the only way to get around that and to change that culture is to develop the know-how yourself. And 99% of the people are unwilling to develop that know-how. So the idea that there is some trader psychology out there, it's complete bullshit. But I mean, even operating like a mechanical strategy or being very quantitative in your approach, uh, do you think that there is a certain degree of psychology, even though it's not nowhere near 90%, um, do you think that there's a small part of it that, that does come down to your psychology? No, I think it's mechanics. 
It's like anything else. It's almost like breathing. I think there's a, I mean, listen, if you're talking about ego, that's fine because, you know, everybody has egos. If you're talking about, you know, risk taking and things, I don't consider that part of your quote psychology. I consider that all part of your mechanics. Now, if you want to, if you want to consider psychology mechanics, then, then sure, but I don't. And, and I think this is a, this is a, um, this is a game that, you know, that comes down to, comes down to mechanics. You said before you didn't play blackjack. I don't believe blackjack is a game that has, there's, there's a psychological element to blackjack. Just like, I don't even believe there's a psychological element to, um, you know, to, to any card game, even poker or, you know, or craps or anything else. I mean, I know people argue that there isn't poker, but if you've ever watched poker players, most of them play by the book. And, and when you're playing any other kind of game, it is straight by the book. So, and now we're starting to see even sports has become, you know, a game of mechanics. We used to say, oh, this, this head coach or this manager is a genius because he, made, he pulled the right string or made the right move at this time. And the reality right now is everything is becoming part of sabermetrics and statistics. And, and of course it's going to go that way because 90, 95% of the time that's going to win every time. So, no, I'm, I'm poo-pooing the whole psychology aspect to it, and I'm suggesting that it's a lack of know-how, it's a lack of desire, and until we get people willing to take on that intellectual challenge, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give ourselves a crutch and call it psychology. <laughs> okay, sure thing. So I said a little earlier that I'd like to, I'd like to pick up on, uh, you know, your days of starting uh, Think or Swim. So uh, just, you know, obviously changing subject a little bit, what motivated you to start Think or Swim? Like where did the idea for, for starting a new platform come from? Well, you know, we were standing in the same pit for 20 years and in about a two, I, I didn't move from a, I had a two foot spot for 20 years, you know, basically. Um, and at some point when we saw the markets changing, we're like, you know, it's almost like you kind of see the hurricane coming and you're, you're like, I'm going to be the first one out of here, not the last one out of here. And essentially, that's what I did. I decided I wanted to be the first one out. And I luckily had had a good career and had made, you know, enough money. And I rolled the dice and and uh, with my trading partner at the time, Scott Sheridan, we decided to build um, Think or Swim. We didn't exactly know what we were doing, but uh, we hired some really smart technologists and, and we... We, you know, we messed around and figured it out over time, and um, we loved it. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life until Tasty Trade. Mm. And I mean, it was such a huge success. Um, I mean, what do you think with it? Maybe the underlying factors for why it was so well received. Um, we hired very smart people. That I mean, this is, you know, uh, we we had a vision, and it was a. It turned out to be a great vision, but at the time, I didn't know. Um, but we had a vision and we hired people that were able to execute our vision rather than change it. And, and, and we got lucky, you know, and when I say we got lucky, listen, it was a ridiculous amount of hard work. I didn't see my family for 10 years, you know, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like we just said, okay, here's an idea. Now you guys go build this. I mean, we, it was a, it was total sweat equity and, and I worked my, you know, I worked my butt off for, for 10 straight years. You know, I was traveling, never came home, working overnight with developers, you know, you know, working with clients. It was a, it was a brutal challenge and, you know, lots of ups, lots of downs. Um, we made breaks for ourselves and, you know, and, and it worked. We built a great company, a great product. We, we, we actually cared about the customers, every single one of them. I wouldn't trade my 
my floor trading experience and I wouldn't trade my Thinkorswim experience for anything. And I didn't want to sell Thinkorswim, but we lost the company because we were public and and uh, we lost it to a buyout from TD Ameritrade and and we built Tasty Trade and I wouldn't ta- I wouldn't trade Tasty Trade for anything now. Okay, so I had no idea about that. See, so you, you kind of lost the company more than actually you made a conscious decision. Well, I shouldn't say we lost it. We sold it for three quarters of a billion dollars. So it wasn't like a bad trade. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, we, we got paid, right? So, I mean, we created a billion dollar company basically. And, and, um, and that's pretty impressive in a business where, you know, we were just a bunch of floor traders. So, so I'm, I'm ecstatic with what we were able to do. And, you know, I'm really proud of the accomplishment. It was a, it was a major, um, you know, a lot of people work their butts off to get places and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And for us, you know, it, it worked and it was, it was, um, it was pretty special. Yeah. Now that's massive. So tell us a little bit about Tasty Trade. Like what's the vision for Tasty Trade? What sparked that idea? What's going on there? When we sold Thinkorswim, um, you know, I was working for TD cause I had a contract for a couple of years to, to finish out my career. And I went to the CEO of TD Merch. I said, you know, I, his name was Fred Tomzak. He's a great guy. And, um, and I said, Fred, it's, I, I love you guys and I love think or swim, but I can't work here. You know, like this is, this is, this is my hell. It's conference calls. It's, uh, it's meetings, it's conference calls. It's a, it's a big company. And, and I like to run my own show. And I said to him, I go, Fred, am, am I going to be the CEO of TD Ameritrade someday? And he goes, not a chance in hell, Tom. So I go, okay, then I got to leave. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I said, but I'm going to go build another firm and, you know, I'd love to work with you guys. And so we, we sat down and we sketched it out and, and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to build, you know, first I built the technology and now I'm going to build the content. And I wanted Tasty Trade to be the content that allowed people to go to another level. And it, it took us a couple of years to figure everything out and to learn how to build a media company. And, and everybody told us we couldn't do it. We couldn't compete with, um, we couldn't compete with TD. We couldn't compete with CNBC. We couldn't compete with Bloomberg. We couldn't compete with anybody, you know, and I don't even know today if we don't have a bigger audience than all of those, than all, they all do. I know we have more active traders than they all have. And we have the largest active trader audience in the world. And, um, and, and we've been profitable basically since day one. And I feel, you know, really good about what we built. It's a, it's a beautiful company. It's um, the, we're a think tank and it's the coolest thing I've ever done. So it's wild. Now, I don't know, I think it was maybe last year or the year before you you made a series on Tasty Trade uh, with your daughter, Case, uh, yeah. to teach her how to trade, which I thought was really cool. So, I mean, what was that whole experience like and where did you even begin to start, you know, with teaching um, your own daughter, like someone in your own family? Well, Case is my firstborn. <laughs> so, and, and when she got out of college, you know, she went to work for a startup in Chicago and it was a small startup with just a couple of people. And, you know, I was like, I wasn't sure if they were going to make it or not, but I thought it was a great experience for her. And when a job opened up here at Tasty Trade, I'm like, you know, I'm like, I talked to her and I'm like, listen, you have a chance to, you know, we're a young firm and you have a chance to, you know, to really, um, to really learn and to learn stuff you might never have done before. And I would love, you know, it would be a dad's dream come true to have an opportunity to, you know, work with you, spend time with you, work with you. It'd be cool as hell. I mean, I couldn't think of a better thing in life, you know? So, so she's like, all right, I'll give it a try. And, and when we were sitting there about a year or two after she was working, I said, let's do a series. I'm going to teach you to trade. And case is not your, um, case is 
sarcastic. She's snarky. She's uh, she's not a yes person at all. And and she's um, I mean we have a great relationship, but but uh, resistance. And uh, she asked some questions, and she was a true beginner. I mean there was no you know she had never made a trade before, and and uh, she you know she had very mixed results, but she still trades to today. So she's trading, um, she's trading even actively as of today. So I did something. Yeah, yeah. I'll put a link to that series uh, in the show notes if anyone wants to check that out. It's very cool. So, sure, uh, Tom, I just got a few more questions here that came through from members in uh, the Chat with Traders Facebook group. Uh, so we'll just run through a couple of those. So one here was, um, what advice do you have for those who want to trade for a living? Go for it. I mean, it's hard. You have to make sure you're. You have to have the capital. You have to know. You have to know what you're doing. It's. If you're in Australia, I don't know where your where your, um, you know, where your listeners are and everything like that. It's it's a little more difficult because of the hours and and the scheduling and things like that and and the fact that there's no really domestic markets. Stay away from pure black and white products if they don't have underlying derivatives like options. Be very careful. Make sure you have enough capital. You know. You have to really be in tune with some of the stuff I talked about, which is managing winners. Don't think you can do it through technical analysis. Understand all the products and, and, and stay small. The key is staying small. And if, don't ever forget that you have to stay small. I don't care how many years you've been doing this. One of the biggest turnarounds for me ever in trading was realizing that I was always trading too big and I needed to get smaller. And so it's a huge, huge benefit. Um, and I think that's – that. you know, I, I – I, I would never discourage somebody from doing what they want to do. I think it's it's had I've had a great life because of trading and it's changed the way I think about, you know, lots of things and businesses and everything else. And I would be I would be it would be very unfair to me to say to anyone that you shouldn't do this or try this or you can't do it because I don't believe that. I think you can. Awesome answer. I love it. Uh, another question that came in, do you have any tips for hedging or spreading options? Well, we call it adjusting or defending. I mean, generally, you don't um, uh, – there's no such thing as hedging in my world. But there is such a thing as reducing basis. So one of the things that we do is whenever you own an option, you sell something else against it. Whenever you own anything and you have the opportunity to sell something else against it, you do. If you have, an, if you have the ability to reduce basis, you do it at any cost, meaning it's, it should be your first mechanical endeavor. No matter what you own, if you own a, a a ballpoint pen and you have an opportunity to reduce the basis on that ballpoint pen, which is the cost of that pen, then you do it because you have a higher statistical chance of success if you're able to do that. And before somebody says, but you're limiting your profitability, who cares? The key to success is limiting profitability to reduce your basis, to reduce your cost and improve your probability of success. So that's the answer to that question. You don't you don't do something to immediately hedge it, but you do lots of things to reduce your basis. Well, thank you very much for doing this, Tom. Uh, before we before we wrap this up, do you want to share with listeners where they can go to find out more about you? Where's the best place? Well, the only place they can find more about me right now is at tastytrade.com. We are a free site. We're available to anybody anywhere in the globe. Um, Tasty Trade is eight hours a day of live content. The archives are free. The content is free. Um, it's an amazing product. I think it's the best financial product in the world. And uh, enjoy. 
just watch it. There's more information on there. There's there's a million hours of information on there. It's just an incredible resource for trading, for investing, for fun. You know, we have fun. And uh, we have um, 40 different shows, eight hours a day live. Uh, I think there's 16 or 17 different people in-house that, that produce the content. And we're a, a small firm of 80 people located in Chicago, Illinois. And um, enjoy. Sure thing. Tastytrade.com. Make sure you guys check it out. Tom, once again, thanks so much for doing this, man. I, I hugely appreciate it. It's been uh, very interesting speaking with you. That's awesome, Aaron. Thank you so much. Hey, folks, Aaron here. Just a quick word following on from the episode. I hope you really did enjoy it, even if you perhaps didn't agree with everything Tom was saying. I know he did make some pretty bold claims, but you know, that's cool. He's obviously got his reasons for thinking this way and we all have to find our own path. Um, you know, that, that's something we've heard before uh, many times over. Like I said, I do kind of regret not pushing him for a little more depth on some of those statements. But anyway, as I mentioned right at the beginning, for the first time, Chat With Traders t-shirts and even hoodies are available right now. These are only available for a limited time though until the 2nd of September. So don't sleep on this. Get on over to chatwithtraders.com forward slash t-shirt to pick up a t-shirt or even a hoodie. There's two designs to choose from and each item is printed on American apparel. So they're very comfy to wear and awesome quality. Again, the link you need to go to is chatwithtraders.com forward slash t-shirt. There's no dashes. um, It's just plain chatwithtraders.com forward slash t-shirt. Hope you like them. Feel free to hit me up on Twitter if there's anything you want to chat about at Chat With Traders. Otherwise, I'll catch you next week. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat With Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.